me to Matthew chapter 19. If you uh, have that in your, have a Bible there, this is the beginning of uh, the New Testament. You can also uh, just Google it, Matthew 19. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. We we'll encourage you to download our uh, the U version Bible app we use. You can go to events and find our service there and some notes. Um, so we're turning to Matthew 19. And for those of you who are um, newer to our church or visiting, we've been going through the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. We're in Leviticus, and we've been kind of working our way through Leviticus, and we came to chapter 18, and there are some things in Leviticus 18 about sexuality and, and how to be obedient to God in those areas. And so we've slowed down a little bit and we've spent some time looking at some of the, the principles from Leviticus 18, helping us apply them in our lives. Uh, Lord willing, this is the last week that we talked about holiness and sexuality. And uh, hopefully that this will be encouraging to you. I'll say a little bit more about where we are in Leviticus in, in a few minutes. But just want to give a little bit of a, a warning as well. Um, you know, we're discussing this morning uh, sin, uh, sexual sin, and we're talking about sexual sin. One of the things we're going to be talking about is sexual sin committed against an individual. And so we're going to be using some, some phrases and some words that uh, might be very hard for some people to hear uh, based upon whatever you know, you've gone through. And so as we use these words or phrases that might be hard for you to hear, I just want you to, to kind of prepare yourself for those words as we, we talk about sexual sin committed against a person and maybe you've been the victim of, of people sinning against you in that area and I want you to feel the freedom to process this sermon however is best for you. Um, it's hard to know in a, in a church of this size what everyone's going through and what might be helpful to say for the majority of people. Uh, there's some things I'm going to say this morning that I think the majority of us need to hear and think about and maybe I've been too timid in saying some of these things before. But at the same time, even though that may be true for the church at large, there may be some people that God has brought to a certain place in their life where this would not be the most helpful thing for them to think about this morning. So I want you to feel the freedom to, if you need to, to step out, uh, maybe listen to this later on your own, or, or say, you know what, I, I need uh, some time before I'm able to, to process some of these things, and I think that's okay. Just want you to be aware of that. But we're in, so we've been in the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, kind of walking through some, some of these things, holiness in Leviticus, and then holiness and sexuality in Leviticus 18. And I want us to read, though, this morning from Matthew chapter 19, where uh, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees have misunderstood the section of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, the, or have been looking at over these months, the, the Pentateuch. They've They've thought that since God recognizes the reality of sin, that he's endorsing sin. And so I want us to think about what Jesus says here in Matthew 19 together as we go back and look at some selected passages in the Pentateuch with Leviticus 18 as kind of a, a the point that we're jumping off from. And so if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Verse 3 of Matthew 19 says, Some Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. But the one who is able to receive this receive it. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word and may each of us uh, for the glory of the kingdom of God commit to following God in obedience. And Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention to the study of your word, uh, please help us to apply it uh, with wisdom, uh, with grace, and help our hearts to be uh, right before you as we pursue your glory. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that everyone, of course, is encouraged through the teaching of God's word this morning, but there are kind of three groups that I've been thinking about in particular as I've been preparing uh, for this message. One, uh, as mentioned earlier, just those who have been the victims of uh, sexual sin. As we think about the principles, that kind of foundation laid out in Genesis 2 of what God has for a man and woman as they come together in marriage, and then we see deviations from that. Uh, we live in a world in where not everyone is committed to Genesis 2 and to Leviticus 18 and other passages, and so I hope that this passage is encouraging to those who have, who have suffered living in a, a wicked world. I hope this message also is encouraging to those who are uh, perhaps a single and desire to be married. I hope that this message encourages you as you think about how to pursue God in holiness. And I hope this message is also encouraging uh, to all of us who desire to grow in this area. As we think about what God has called us to as we've gone through these principles and we recognize that none of us are obedient to God perfectly, I hope that it encourages us as we seek to strive to be obedient to God. Now, let me remind you where we are. We're in the book of Leviticus, and in the book of Leviticus, we encounter a people who are living in the presence of God, a holy God. You come to the end of Exodus, and the people have built this tabernacle, and the tabernacle is filled with the glory of God, and there is a distance between the people and God, and they recognize, how, how can we live in the same proximity to a holy God? And so Leviticus talks to the people about God's holiness, and we've seen holiness defined in this way as we've come to Leviticus. We've seen that holiness is about devoting ourselves to God. A person who is committing to holiness is saying, okay, I'm, I'm consecrating, I'm devoting myself to God, and I understand that as I pursue God, it means separating myself from other things. And so as I encounter sin in my life, I, I distance myself from that because I'm pursuing God. Holiness at its essence is the pursuit and love of God. The more that I love God and his glory, the holier that I am. And we've seen that we cannot be holy apart from Jesus Christ. 
Leviticus points us to Jesus Christ. As we come to the New Testament, we understand it's only in Jesus Christ that I have hope of holiness. And as I come to Jesus Christ, I place my faith in him alone. I receive his righteousness, and then I, I grow, I pursue God. I continue to manifest his righteousness in my life. And we come here to this part of Leviticus, and we see about holiness and sexuality. And as we've gone through this chapter and other portions of Leviticus, we've seen a couple of things, a couple of principles. And I'm just going to kind of read through these. You don't, uh, you're not going to have time to write them down. I'm not going to have them up behind me there on the, the screen. But just you can kind of go back and look at these if you need a refresher. But I kind of want to give us the context as we look at the last couple this morning. Here are the principles we've seen so far. We began by seeing that sexual ethics in the Pentateuch Sexual ethics in the Pentateuch are grounded in the one flesh relationship that God creates in Genesis 2. Secondly, we saw that sexuality is to be expressed in the context of a permanent marriage relationship between one man and one woman. We also saw that sexual morality is based not on the decrees of our culture, but sexual morality is based on our submission to a holy God. In other words, we don't look to our culture to see what God desires us to do, but we, we base our understanding of ethics in the area of sexuality on what a holy God tells us to do. We've also seen that sexual purity is the only way to experience the fullness of God's blessing in this life. We've seen that sexual partners in the marriage relationship are restricted by God and his holiness. We, we saw as we went to Leviticus, Leviticus 18, we saw these rules against incest. And we saw that God has designed a person who is different from us for us to be in this one flesh relationship with. And so we, we looked at that. We also saw that sexual activity in the marriage relationship is both encouraged by God and, and restricted in his holiness. As we enter the marriage relationship, we enter the marriage relationship with a desire to continue to pursue God in his holiness in the area of intimacy. God's glory is still our goal in that aspect of life. We saw that sexual sin is so deadly that it is worth taking radical steps to eradicate it. We saw, eighthly, that sexual sin is idolatrous. When we commit sexual sin, it's idolatry, it's self-worship, it's satanic. And then the last thing we looked at last week is that sexuality is expressed within the context of of gender. We talked about those things. So that brings us to this principle. The next principle is this. Sexual sin's victims are cared for by a loving Heavenly Father. Now, I've been praying for several months to communicate this in, in a very... A loving and appropriate way. Whenever someone has a loved one passed away, pass away, it's it's hard to know what to say to them, right? You want to say some things that will make everything better. And at some point when you're ministering to a person who's lost a loved one or gone through a tragic circumstance, you realize, you know what, there's there's nothing I can say to make the pain go away, to make this better. I think that's true in, in this circumstance as well, that there are, there are no words adequate to care for people in such a way who have been the victims of sexual sin to take away pain, right? You just have to own that. We also recognize in a, a group as, as large as our church that there, there are a spectrum of ways that the people have been harmed by sexual sin. 
spectrum of ways. And there are no words that are going to cover all of those things. And not only are there, there's a spectrum, but there, but different people need different things. And so something similar may have happened to, to two people and what is going to help one person is not words that are going to help one person are not going to help another. Some words that are going to help this person aren't going to help the other. And, and so we just have to acknowledge that, that reality of living in a fallen world as well. So, so what I want to say as we think about this principle and think about it here in the Pentateuch is th- there's two things that I, I want us to think through. Two things I want to say. One, people who have been the victims of sexual sin are not alone. And the second thing I want to say, they're they're not alone from a human perspective. I'll talk more about that in a second. And then secondly, secondly, God, God cares for you and is your protector, your defender, your advocate. Here's the first thing. You're not alone. You're not alone. In this fallen world, there are, first of all, other human beings who who care about you. Sometimes you can perhaps feel isolated, but you need to understand there are people who, who care about you and love you. And in your pain, you are, even though it may feel like this, you're, you're not alone. And you're also not alone in the sense that even though no one has been through exactly what you've been through, there are people who have been through circumstances that are not entirely dissimilar to what you've been through. Matt and Tom were two men who thought they were alone. Matt and Tom were two brothers who were in their their 40s who had been the victim of sexual sin, assault by a scoutmaster. Matt and Tom, throughout their entire lives, their early uh, 20s and and 30s, struggled with, with, with different things. Matt would grow queasy at the sight of young scouts in uniform. His brother Tom would suffer nightmares as he remembered fighting off his scoutmaster's advances. And both of these men went through their lives feeling very much alone. In fact, they didn't even talk with one another about what they had been through as young boys. And it wasn't until, it wasn't until they were in their mid-40s that as they were reading some newspaper reports of other young men who had gone through some difficult circumstances that they came forward. And as a result of their willingness to come forward, Uh, There were stories of thousands of other people who had suffered at the hands of people who were supposed to be their mentors. Katie was a young woman who felt very much alone. Katie was 20 years old when she was raped. She was in her apartment. Her attacker was someone that she thought was a friend. And, and Katie struggled with feeling very much alone. She writes this. She bravely came forward and, and gave her testimony. And listen to what Katie writes. She says, approximately, approximately 17.7 million American women have been the victims of attempted or completed rape. That is about one in six women in the United States. She says, I refuse to be just a statistic. I'm, I'm breaking my silence. First, I want to say if you have been a victim of rape or attempted rape, you are not, and she puts not in all capital letters, alone. If it has been 10 days or 10 years, start talking about it. 
she talks about her living in silence. And she says as she lived in silence, she didn't know this, but she was actually giving the enemy more power over her life. And she talks through the, the struggles that she went through. And I think what she describes is very, very understandable. So she says, I went through a time where I, I pretended to be happy, but I was dying on the inside. She said, I was, I was ashamed to come forward. I was afraid to come forward for, for many reasons. One, I was afraid that people wouldn't believe me. I was afraid that people would somehow blame me. In fact, she says, I was sometimes afraid that maybe it was my fault. Maybe I had done something to deserve this. She says that she was afraid of how people would look at her. She was afraid of what coming forward would, would do to her parents. She was afraid of what it would do to her friends. She didn't want people to look at her like a victim. She felt like damaged goods. In her pain, she stayed isolated. It was only through God's grace as she thought and contemplated on the gospel that she was willing to come forward. And, and here's what those who have been the victims of sexual sin need to understand. You're not alone. You're not alone in the sense that other people who have loved you before they know this about you are going to continue to love and stand with you. And you need to know that you're not alone in the sense that other people have been through not the same thing, but similar things that will love and support you. Those of us who say, boy, this doesn't resonate with me, that the types of things I, I haven't been through this. Here's what we need to know. More people have been affected by this in our church, in our community of faith, than we realize. You may not have been through this, but, but perhaps the person who is sitting just a few rows from you has. Whenever I was in my early 20s, my, my mom called me at uh, the office at, at uh, the church and she said, hey, um, you, you just need to know that, uh, and then she, she named a man. She said, this, this man's just been arrested for um, abusing children, molesting children. And she said, I think some of your friends were the victims. And she said, I just need to know, uh, were you? I said, no, no, I, this is a complete shock to me. But Jen, this, just the grief overwhelmed me as I realized um, many of my friends, my, my best friend from middle school, had, had been through a horrific circumstance and I had been completely unaware my entire childhood. More people than we know have been the victims of living in a fallen world where people do not follow God and his instructions and they manifest their sin in horrifically wicked ways. But even more importantly than knowing that you're not alone in a human sense, you need to know, we all need to know that God cares about this. God is a God who cares and a God who will defend and a God who will advocate. Let, let me read you some, some portions of, of, the, of the Pentateuch here. And we're just going to look at a couple passages to, to kind of get the idea. And, and there's, some, there's some hard things here. And as I read through some of the passages, you're going to say, boy, that just culturally, there's a distance here. And I, I don't understand why God says some of the things the way that he says them. Why doesn't he address with other issues? Why does he punish it this way and not punish it that way? I can't go into each passage in the depth that I would like to, but here's, I want you to kind of step out of the, the cultural 
specifics and understand the, the big picture here that you need to see is that God, as he addresses these things in, in the Pentateuch, he's saying, I'm not okay with abuse. I am the defender of the weak. God is a protector of the weak and sexual sin is not to be permitted among God's covenant people. And the victims of sexual sin are going to be defended. Their advocate is God himself. So, for example, turn over if you're there in Leviticus. Turn over. We're in Leviticus 18. Just turn a chapter over into Leviticus 19. So you go through those things in Leviticus 18, the the unlawful sexual relations and and those types of things. And then you come into 19 and we see loving God and and loving your neighbors yourself. We're going to talk about that some next time we're together and looking at Leviticus. But but then you come uh, to verse 20 of Leviticus 19. And it describes a man and a woman who's a slave having a consensual, intimate relationship. And it says, this, this woman's a slave. She's been assigned to other men. She's betrothed. She's engaged. And yet she's not free. It says, a distinction shall be made. They won't be put to death because she's not free. But he shall bring his compensation to the Lord, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And so what you have here is this, is this situation in which a, a, there's a consensual, intimate relationship between a man and a slave woman. And God says, look, um, these, these two people are not going to receive the death penalty. And yet this, this uh, relationship, there's going to be, you, you can't just treat a slave any way you desire, even though it was seems here a consensual relationship. The, there's a power dynamic here in which uh, the, the slave doesn't have the same protection a free person wouldn't. God's saying, well, you, can't, you can't treat people with disdain and abuse. The powerful can abuse the weak. God cares about them. Turn over to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 21. You come into verse 10. And you see another scenario described there. It says, when you, when you go to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them in your hands. This is Deuteronomy 21, verse 10. It says, you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house. She shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured, and shall remain in your house, and lament her father and her mother a full month and after that you may go into her and to be your hu- and be your husband and she shall be your wife and so here the scenario is you've you've conquered this people and among the captives there's someone you desire to take a, as a wife and if she uh, consents to be a part of your household and become a part of the, the covenant community of God you can't just you can't just coerce her into that relationship there is a a legal process by which this person is going to be brought into the community people of God in verse 14, if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. In other words, she has now become a full member of the community. She's just like another free person who's part of your community of faith. You shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you've humiliated her. Now you say, boy, Daniel, why doesn't God address slavery here? Why doesn't he address uh, captivity? Why doesn't he address all these other things? And I'd say, look, I, I think we need to understand this the same way we understand what's taking place that Jesus describes in Matthew 19. God recognizing that that sin is going to occur isn't the same as God condoning it, right? He's saying in the midst of a wicked culture, in which people are going to act in an oppressive way, my concern isn't with obliterating all hierarchical structures. My concern is protecting those people who are part of the system against abuse. 
to offer legal protection. In fact, turn over one chapter to Deuteronomy 22. And we see a, a progression in Deuteronomy 22, beginning in verse 13. Beginning in verse 13, we see a, a scenario where a, a man decides, he has his wife, and he decides he doesn't want to be married to her anymore. Now, that's, God recognizes that's a reality. He's not condoning that. He's recognizing this, this reality may take place. And, and so, recognizing that reality, he says, if he accuses, if he lies and accuses her of unfaithfulness, what's his penalty? It says... In verse 18, the elders of the city will take the man and whip him and find him a hundred shekels. That was an enormous amount of money. A hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel and she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. And that again assumes that she's consenting to live with him. In other words, if he says, I don't want to have responsibility for, and again, we have to put ourselves in this culture a little bit. I don't want to have physical responsibility for caring for this woman. Moses is saying, no, you are now fiscally responsible for her, her entire life. And then we see uh, the penalty for both the, the man and the woman who commit adultery in verses 21 through 22 is, is death. Verse 22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Now, as you go through the chapter, you see some other scenarios. Verses 23 uh, through 24 describe a, an engaged woman and a man who meet in the city, and there's a consensual relationship. Both of them receive death unless there is uh, mercy in that situation. Then, though, we see in verses 25 another scenario. It says in verse 25, in this scenario, it's in the open country, and a man meets a young woman who's engaged. So again, an engaged woman, but instead of in the city, it's in a field, and there's a, he says he seizes her and lies with her, describing a sexual assault or a rape. It says here that only the man who lay with her shall die. Now, what does this mean? It says you shall do nothing with the young woman. She's committed no offense, punishable by death. This means that whenever a, a person is assaulted, a young woman is assaulted by a man, she's an engaged woman, the man receives the death penalty. There's here a belief, there's a trust in the veracity of her story, there's compassion toward her, and in this passage, as throughout the entire passage, God's concern is on protection of those who've been wronged, those who are the victims of sexual sin. Then in the next few verses, you encounter yet another scenario. And this scenario seems a little bit more strange and get into we understand the cultural context. It says now, if um, verse 28, if a man meets a virgin who's not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, so this woman is not engaged and they're found. Again, the woman is innocent, but the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife. That's assuming she consents because he has violated her. Now, now why... Why would, would that be the scenario in this case? Well, this culture, what would have happened in the scenario before, this, this young woman was assaulted. She had a, a, a husband to whom she was engaged. This man receives the death penalty, and this other man receives the responsibility to care for her. But now in this scenario, you have a woman who's not engaged. A person assaults her. And now what Moses is saying, what God is saying in this cultural context is now this man bears the responsibility to, to, if she consents to this and her father, 
bears responsibility to care for her in perpetuity, forever. No possibility of divorce, no possibility of absolving herself of the responsibility to care for her, assuming she consents to that. Now, again, getting outside the cultural context from this ancient Near Eastern context, it's hard for us to understand what all these things mean in terms of what they would have communicated to people. One message becomes very clear. God's concern is to restrain the evil of those who would, who would perpetrate sexual sin. What does that mean for us as a church? It means that those of us who are part of the community of faith must take sexual sin against others very seriously. When we find sexual sin that harms others inside the church, we deal with it. We don't ignore it. We don't pretend it doesn't exist. We don't explain it away. Even when it occurs in an institution in which we love, we deal with it. And those who have been the victims of sexual assault within the church need to know that we stand with them. Because God stands with them, and we do not want to get in the way of a holy God who defends his children. It also means that when we encounter sexual sin in our culture that demeans women, particularly, demeans the helpless, we stand against it unequivocally, be it in a movie star, someone in the cultural arena, be it a, a political candidate from our own party, we do not tolerate it. We give it no quarter as a church. Absolutely not. I want to encourage you to, to have hope as we encounter this section of Scripture. I want to read a testimony from a young woman She's talking about reading Leviticus 18, and this is a young woman who was um, who was abused by a close relative, sexually abused by a close relative, and she read Leviticus 18. Let me let me read what she what she wrote. She says, "I remember very clearly the moment sunlight coming in the window onto my desk and the words leaping out at me: 'You shall not uncover the nakedness of.'" From Leviticus 18, she said she writes incest taboos. One after another, I slammed the book shut, shut. I was shocked. I had no idea that was in the Bible. I never imagined it might be mentioned there. It didn't matter that my, and she mentions her relative by now, was six years dead. Nor did it matter that long before he died, I'd confronted him on all the things that he'd done to me. Nor did it even matter that he'd continue to deny them until the day he did die. I never knew that what he did was condemned by his God before he ever did it. I never knew he was breaking God's law. But there it was, clear as anything. I will never be able to explain what that moment was like, the discovery of Leviticus 18. I wanted to call up everyone I knew and say, it was wrong. What he did was wrong. It was everything he told me was against what he said, what it says right here in the Bible. 
therapists had told me, my own instincts told me, everything had told me, yet nothing told me the way Leviticus told me, wrong, condemned, hateful in the eyes of God. Even as I wanted to yell out, I was struck dumb, speechless. It was wrong, truly, truly wrong. And for the first time, I felt utterly and absolutely vindicated. For the first time, I felt clean. For the first time, I felt that what had happened was between him and his God, and he'd have to make his expiation however he did it. I felt absolved. I felt released. That's exactly right. As we think about how to encourage those who we love, first of all, we would encourage those who have been the victims of sexual sin, and if this is you, I'd encourage you to believe the gospel that tells you that the world is a wicked, wicked place. And what happened to you was horrible. It was from the pit of hell. It is condemned by God. I would also encourage you to, to as, as you believe the gospel, sometimes, I, I would encourage you with this as well, sometimes it is easy for us as we say, okay, I'm, I'm a sinner, and that's the right thing to understand. I'm a sinner, and something bad happened to me. Sometimes we make the connection, well, because I'm a sinner, which is a true statement, because I'm a sinner, this bad thing that happened to me is because I'm a sinner, and that is not correct theology. The shame, the guilt that people feel, I think, is sometimes just a, a twisted, twisted deception of the enemy, right? Taking a true statement that I'm a sinner and, and twisting what happened to me and, and seeing it as a result, those things are not connected. There's no condemnation for those, this is what the gospel tells us, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God hates what happened to you He's your advocate. He's your defender. And you do not need to feel the shame of the penalty of what another person has done to you. I would encourage you to live in light of the gospel that says all things are made new in Christ. And you have received forgiveness from a loving God who sent his son Jesus to die for all your sins and any sin that you might encounter in life. I would encourage you to live in light of the gospel and not in the darkness of hurt and hate. I would encourage you to remember something. And again, I don't know if these words are helpful to everyone. Some people they may be helpful to, others not. But if you're struggling with, with feelings of this, as Katie mentioned, that she struggled with feelings of shame, feeling dirty, remember this. Remember that purity is not, your purity is not based on what has happened to you. It's based upon your present commitment by the grace of God to live in obedience to him because you love him as you live by faith in Jesus Christ, right? That's what purity is. It is not based upon what other people have done to you. And that is an encouragement, I think, from the Lord, who is your advocate. Well, let's, let's look at the last principle that I want us to consider uh, as we go through this series since this. Uh, sexuality and marriage are to be pursued in a way that reflects God's holiness. We're switching gears a little bit here. But if you're a, a single person, you say, okay, Daniel, I've, I've heard all these principles, and, man, I really want to live, I really want to live in obedience to Genesis 2. But uh, living in obedience to Genesis 2 requires someone to live in obedience 
to Genesis 2 with. How do I get there? It seems like a long journey from here to there, and I'm not sure how to think about that. Let me just give you four thoughts. One, I would encourage you to understand that that marriage and intimacy is is a good thing to desire. Don't be embarrassed about desiring that. Don't be don't be bashful and say, well, I don't know, is it okay for me to feel this way? God hasn't sovereignly brought this in. It's a, it's a good thing to desire. I can remember whenever uh, Whitney and I were dating, uh, I, I really wanted to be married. And, and I was anxious to do everything I, I could to, you know, kind of accelerate that, that timeline. I, I, uh, I knew as I, as I talked to Whitney, I, I got the sense that her, her dad wanted her to marry, well, someone that could financially provide for her. And so I was like, okay, uh, got to get a, in, in our, in our context for me, that meant finishing my, my college education. So I, you know, I worked, um, you know, I took as many classes as I could each semester. I, I cranked that thing out in just a little under three years and, and talked to her dad and, and, uh, you know, I, I took his, well, maybe as a definite yes. And, uh, we, you know, we plowed forward, right? It's a good thing to desire. A second encouragement that I give you, though, is is pursuing marriage or intimacy in an idolatrous way is sinful. Pursuing marriage or marriage intimacy, good thing to want. Pursuing it in an idolatrous way is sinful. Right after Genesis three, the fall, you see things falling apart so quickly. You see the the disaster that that takes place as people try to to, uh, not be obedient to God and pursue intimacy in in ways that that he has not called them to. You see polygamy take place very quickly. And you see that just throughout the Pentateuch, throughout the Old Testament, you see see the danger of of polygamous relationships. And in fact, in Leviticus 18, uh, some some of the translations when it talks about not marrying uh, a, a, a two sisters, really, it's, it's talking about some translations say it's, it's even t- just talking broadly about two women. It's condemning polygamy there in Leviticus 18. I, I think there's some truth to that. God wants us to pursue intimacy. It's a good thing to desire, but we don't pursue it in idolatrous ways. And we talked about that some last week as well. Then here's a third principle, a third encouragement I'd give to you. Um, have the people that you trust, have people you trust and involved in your decision-making process. Have people you trust involved in your decision-making process in, in this area. Um, let me say this in love uh, to those of you who are, are single and, and are romantically interested in someone. Uh, you're an idiot. I mean, uh, in, in terms of your, spiritually speaking, like in your ability to be objective and your ability to say, I am going to approach this very logically. No, you're not. Uh, and that's okay. So what you need, or you need, you need the community of faith. You need people you love. Uh, for some of us, that's our parents or, or uh, wise people that come alongside us and say, hey, let's, let's think about this biblically. And then I'd also offer this encouragement to those who are single. Uh, treat as you think about dating and you think about pursuing relationships, recording, whatever you want to call it, uh, treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Paul says this to Timothy, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. And then he says, in all purity. And so how is Paul telling this young man, Timothy, to treat 
uh, the younger women. Treat, treat them like sisters in purity. And I think that's a, a good objective for a young man and young woman who find themselves in a situation where they're single. They know that they want to be married. They know that they want to glorify God in that area of their life. I think before you uh, continue to pursue things, you treat one another like brother and sister in Christ. And I think it's helpful to be honest with your feelings. You know, people say, you know what, I feel, I feel an attraction to this person. I want to know what God uh, wants me to do in this area. Uh, and yet at the same time to say, look, um, I don't want to do anything that's going to harm the name of Christ or hurt or defraud my brother or sister. As you enter into a relationship with a, a brother or sister in Christ, and it's, it's at that point of relationship before engagement, before you've, you know, or before you've, I think scripture kind of delineates pre-engagement, then an engagement process, and then marriage. And as you think about the, the situation before you've, you've uh, entered into a, a marriage vow with a person, there should be a recognition that if, if God put the brakes on things, you could walk away from that relationship. And even though there might be some pain, uh, neither one of you could accuse the other of defrauding one another, of not being uh, faithful to the glory of God in that relationship, and that each of you would walk away from that relationship closer to God and not more distant. Well, last thing, moving forward, how do, how do we fight? This is things that we've, we've talked about already. Believe the gospel, believe the message of forgiveness, and uh, as you've if you're honest with yourself as you think through these principles, there, there's not a single person here who has not failed in these, in, these, in these principles in some way, right? None of us think completely rightly about holiness in any area, and that includes this. But believe the gospel, believe the message of forgiveness. Every strategy, as Heath Lambert puts it, every strategy needs to be rooted in the gospel of grace believing that we're pursuing these things, not our own works, but on the basis of God's grace in our life. Secondly, I would encourage you to repent, right, as we move forward. So believe the gospel and the message of grace and, and then repent. In other words, as I, as I think about my sin, I'm not just sad about the consequences of my sin. I don't say, well, boy, I, I did this thing and it hurt my spouse, and so I'm really sad it hurt my spouse. Or I did this thing and it hurt my girlfriend. I'm really sad it hurt my girlfriend. I, I did this thing and it really hurt my family. I did this thing and I suffered shame and embarrassment. And I'm, I'm embarrassed about the embarrassment I felt. I'm, I'm sad about that. No, what we say is I, I'm, I'm upset about the sin itself. This, this thing that I did that violates God's instruction. I'm upset about that because I love God and I love his son, Jesus. And I recognize that Jesus is more valuable than anything else. And, and this thing has kept me from pursuing Jesus in the way that I desire to. And, and my heart aches because I think about this, this thing that I've done because it, it fails. It causes me to fail to pursue Jesus with my entire heart, soul, mind, strength. And so I'm, I'm turning from this thing. I'm repenting because I, I, don't desire, I don't desire this thing. I desire Jesus. So we repent. We believe, we believe that Jesus sets people free. As we've seen in 1 Corinthians 6 several times, as he describes sin, he says, there's all these types of sins, and such were some of you. Then we take radical steps. We don't begin with taking radical steps, but as we believe the gospel, as we turn from sin, 
as we believe that Jesus saves, we, we take radical steps to remove sinful things from our life. And we're willing to do those things by God's grace. We seek help and, and accountability. We want to love God. And we recognize that we, we want to be devoted and consecrated and set apart to, to God. We need his righteousness. We cannot work to earn his righteousness. We can only receive his righteousness through faith in his son Jesus. And yet as we receive that righteousness through our faith in his son Jesus, it changes us. It causes us to pursue him more and more by his grace for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus and for the life that we have in his name. Give us grace today to pursue him with our whole hearts, with our mind, soul, strength. We pray this for your glory in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.